0: This episode of Market Foolery is brought to you by Sure Payroll. If you're a small business owner, you know that payroll and payroll taxes can be a headache. Sure Payroll has simplified payroll services with just three easy steps online. To learn more, visit surepayroll.com/fool and get a free quote. It's Monday, January 9th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, Joining me in studio today, half of the usual Monday crew
1: from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. I'm gonna to try to. Make up for Taylor's absence here today, but that's really hard to do. So. We'll, pull, we'll
0: pull back the curtain a little bit here. Taylor, uh, and this is uncharacteristic of Taylor. Taylor completely on board, just like, yep, yeah, I'm all set. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then about 30 minutes before we were supposed to walk in the studio, he's like, oh hey, yeah, no, I can't make it today. Yeah, I'm all jammed. And it's like, all right, that's you know, because as I as I said in the final episode of 2016, not paid to be here. Hey, you know, we fly by the seat of our pants <laughs> a little bit. Uh, we have earnings season kicking off formally this week, we will give a little bit of a preview. But the news fairy did show up over the weekend, so we'll, we'll hit a couple of quick things. And Let's start with the fact that this week in Detroit, last week in Vegas, you've got CES. This week in Detroit, you've got the big auto show. and uh, I think it was less than a week ago that Volkswagen announced that CEO Matthias Mueller will not be attending the big auto show in Detroit. And that's probably a good idea because uh, just a couple of days after they made that announcement, the FBI arrested Oliver Schmidt in Florida. Who is Oliver Schmidt, you may ask? (laughs) Oliver Schmidt headed up Volkswagen's regulatory compliance office here in the United States, and he is now charged with conspiracy to defraud the United States of America.
1: I mean, it sounds like they probably have the right guy. Like regulatory, and that's what the nature of their
0: yeah. I think it's. I mean, I'm, transgressions. I'm not an FBI agent, but this this seems like it's pretty easy to connect the dots on.
1: Sure, and I think uh, I think Volkswagen is trying to do everything in their power to change the conversation, steer the conversation away from this and toward actual. The actual future of this of this company, cars that they're producing, ideas that they're coming out with. I think uh, I would encourage anyone interested in this in this segment. Uh, You mentioned the North American International Auto Show that's this week. I have had the good fortune of going that a couple of times. It's really impressive. Uh, We've got our our guy John Rosevear, who's uh, our auto industry expert, and he's there uh, this week. And you can follow him on Twitter at John underscore R O S E V E A R. He's tweeting out some great stuff, pictures, uh, ideas, things that these companies are saying. He's got some good uh, Volkswagen stuff up there early, Um, and I think that's really the goal: is they're trying to figure out any which way they can to steer this conversation uh, away from the past and and into what they're trying to bring uh, to the market for the future. And that's really it's going to be very important for them to do that because I think right now they are facing a serious brand problem, at least. North American wise. Oh yeah. I mean, this is obviously a global company, and in North America is not going to make or break them, but it's not going to help the cause if they can't really sort of turn the perception around here sooner rather than later.
0: I I just like to because you're right. They do want to change the conversation. In the meantime, the FBI would like to have a conversation about conspiracy to defraud the United States. Uh, VCA, which is the veterinary supply company with one of the best ticker symbols going, which is Woof, W O O F. VCA is being acquired for 7.7 7 billion dollars. And now you, you may think, well, a veterinary supply company, who's a logical buyer of that? And in this case, it happens to be Mars, the candy conglomerate. Yeah. I, I got to admit, I saw this, and Mars is a privately Held company, and it is routinely on the list of anytime you see an article of, well, what are private companies that you wish were public so you could invest in that sort of thing? Mars often shows up on that list. I did a double take when I saw this. (laughs) This, I mean, is there synergy here? Uh, Uh, Synergy. I mean, Mars does have. (laughs) They are in the pet health business. This isn't completely out of the blue, but let's let's be honest. If you know Mars at all,
1: you know it for the candy sure and and I think i mean there there is going to be some synergy, yes, I mean, there is an animal care operation that that dynamic to Mars's business, so i I think this is just really honestly smart investing on mars's part and and the reason why I say that is I think that v c a has done a lot of the heavy lifting and building out this big animal hospital network close to seven hundred uh practices now supported by A lot of veterinarians, and and I think that, you know, I think that when we talk about healthcare, wanting to get exposure to healthcare in our portfolios, and and the the assumption is always just straight to humans, and that's understandable. I mean, we're humans after all, right? But as a dog owner, and as a dog owner all my life, I can testify to the fact that. When your dog's got a problem, you're going to go get it taken care of, and you're not going to really ask a whole heck of a lot of questions other than like, what do I have to do, and how much is it going to cost? And so, I think that when you look at the market opportunity here that that exists, and in somewhere in the neighborhood of eighty million or so households here domestically have pets. I mean, there's there's a lot of cats and dogs out there, and and this is not something that's going to change. I mean, I think this is something that's that's relatively. It's a very common type of behavior. I mean, people love to have pets, and it's understandable. And pets, pets uh, offer a lot. Um, we're going to do what, whatever we can to take care of them. And so VCA, you know, it's it's, it's interesting. Pets market. offer a lot. You know what they don't offer? Money. <laughs> they don't offer a lot so, of money. So who's going to so pay for that? That's you the deal. Are. That's that's where you got to sort of you weigh that sort of out when when you when you bring them into your life. But when you do bring them into your life, and you realize it is a commitment. I mean, it's going to be 10, 12, 13, 14 years where you're going to have. This buddy, and and you're going to take care of that buddy, and and typically it's a cash business. I mean, there are insurance policies that you can take out for your pets these days, and those are neat offerings. But I think for the most part, this is a cash business, and you go you go to your vet, you pay your bill right there, and so it's attractive from that perspective. Now, for veterinarians, you sort of have one of two choices there. You can try to go go start your own practice, and that involves a lot. I mean, you're running your own business, and you have to get everything. Um, Taken care of there from property to equipment and rounding up a clientele, or you look at something like what VCA provides, which is this network of hospitals already a tremendous amount of equipment, and they're on the cutting edge. They have a lot of money; they make a lot of cash with this business, which means they can reinvest and keep up to with the latest technology. So, I think from a veterinarian's perspective, it's at least an understandable option that they're going to consider, and and I think that. For the foreseeable future, this is going to be a market that always exists. I think it's a market where scale really gives you a lot of advantage because you can spread a lot of those fixed costs out across a larger base of hospitals and customers. And um, when you have that up-to-date technology, people are going to tend to trust that you can take care of of uh, whatever problems may come up. So I think it's a smart move by Mars. If you look at the five-year chart here for VCA, the stock has been just on a tear another business that I followed for a long time, MWI veterinary supply which uh, was more in the the medicine side um, recently acquired very much the same story though yeah they just it's a very reliable market. it's one where there's not a lot of debating going on. it's just I think that one of the most attractive parts about this market is sort of the lack of the insurance dynamic. I think it's a much more transparent. Um, an understandable market, as far as sort of understanding how the money flows through the business.
0: Shares of VCA, by the way, up twenty seven percent today on this buyout. And this, you just reminded me of something we talked about on Motley Fool Money over the weekend. This uh, trend that we have seen in over the last twenty years of fewer and fewer public companies. Yep. And this, and now one fewer on the market. <laughs> One other thing on the auto front, you mentioned uh, John Rosevear, and I'll I'll tweet out on the Market Flurry feed his 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 Twitter handle because yeah, John is a is a great guy to follow if you are at all interested in the auto industry, and certainly all eyes on Detroit this week. Um, Also, a programming note: Paul Leinert, who's the longtime uh, editor uh, for Reuters in Detroit, he's going to be our guest on Motley Fool Money this weekend, and so we'll be we'll be talking about all of that. Earning season kicks off. Yes, God bless the people of Alcoa; they get to kick it off. (laughs) Um, Who who needs a hit? Let's start there because there are a lot of companies coming out of the holidays that uh, that need a hit. And I'm just curious if you had to rank order, who's number one on your list in terms of, you know, we like to take the long term view at the Motley Fool when we're looking at investments. That doesn't mean that just as we talked about with Volkswagen, and they need to change the narrative here in North America. There are companies out there that hit a rough stretch, and they need to change the narrative. And one great way to do that is to have a blowout quarter.
1: Yeah, a blowout quarter, or just change the conversation at least a little bit. And I like to look for sort of high-quality businesses that maybe are facing interesting sort of challenges right now. Boston Beer is one that just comes right to mind. It's a business we own a million-dollar portfolio. It's one that I own personally. I like this business for a lot of reasons. I mean, I think they're faced with this really difficult um, challenge right now, as as craft beer has made this huge leap forward uh, over the past few years. And we're seeing so many more micro breweries so many more offerings on the shelves and, and it just sort of got to the point where you started thinking okay at some point this has to stop there's too much I can't even figure out what kind of beer I want to get because there's so many choices and we are starting to hit that point now the problem with Boston beer is for the longest time they sort of they sort of helped spearhead this craft movement right I mean they they were known and have been known as sort of the the leader of the craft brew movement since it started back in in uh, I guess maybe the mid 90s or so uh, They've had a really difficult past year. I mean, every quarter it has been more of the same. Depletions have been facing challenges. They're not selling as much beer. Uh, they're not shipping as much beer. They guide down, um, and and it, it's a company that we had on the watch list with million dollar portfolio back when shares were at around two hundred twenty dollars. We recognized through the valuation work that the the price didn't quite make sense for some of those challenges that we saw um, on the horizon. So. Fortunately for us, we sort of held off, and we—I think we ended, ended up buying shares around one hundred and sixty dollars, which worked out well for us because I feel like that's about—I feel like that's about the bottom for this business. Now this you have to make a, a sort of a judgment with a business like this, and think either one of two things is happening: either this is a business that is in a—if uh, if the challenges are temporary in nature, or is this a business that is permanently impaired? and i tend to think that it's more of the latter or it's more of the, of the former i don't think this is a business that is is permanently impaired they are dealing with i think this perception at least that they are becoming less and less associated with craft and more and more sort of a between craft and mass brew and i get that um they sell a lot more beer than most any of these craft brewers out there but they need to figure out a way to expand their offerings. And I, I think that the obvious pluses for this business, the scale that they have in production, the national distribution network, all work out in their favor. I think what they need to do, and I think what we'll probably see them do here in the coming year to two years, is figuring out ways to bring more brands into their Alchemy & Science subsidiary. And I wouldn't be terribly surprised to see an acquisition at some point of perhaps a smaller brewer. Um, with with a pretty popular name domestically, and it, and I think we haven't seen that yet because multiples have been so high because there has been so much enthusiasm in this craft brew market at this point. That I mean, we go back to to Constellation's one billion dollar purchase of Ballast Point, which was just absurd by every measure. I mean, it was just it just I couldn't I couldn't wrap my head around the valuation. It still doesn't make sense to that. For the
0: sake of context, Boston Beer Company is a two billion dollar company. Right.
1: I mean, Boston Beer produces. Uh, more more beer than than uh, Ballast by a factor of like ten or something. I mean it it is really it is really that substantial, um, and so that was a bet by Constellation perhaps that Ballast has uh, some some heady days of growth ahead of it. I, I tend to disagree. I think Ballast is just another relatively decent offering. But the perception once you get bought by a big by a big player in that space is that you've gone you've gone mainstream and you sold out. And and I think that we're even seeing that on the shelves. Ballast is having to rely to you know cutting some prices I've seen at least and so I think that's gonna be a problem that Boston beer more or less isn't going to have to face as much because they have already been priced sort of attractively For consumers. I mean they're not demanding that that high premium as, as far as craft beers go.
0: When you think about the the footprint that Boston Beer has, obviously it's based in Boston, is it is it more of a an eastern half of the country type of thing? I'm trying to where where I'm going with this is if they are going to acquire a smaller craft brewer, is it as safe a bet as any that that small brewer is in the western half of the country? I think that would
1: certainly be worth looking at. Um, I I think that I mean you make a very good point there, in sort of looking at the East Coast versus the West Coast, and there are some delineations to be made there. And and Widmer Brothers, for example, which is a a brand that is part of the Craft Brew Alliance, which is also a publicly traded company that I've talked about before, it's much smaller than Boston Beer. Widmer Brothers is uh, a much smaller operation, but very popular out there on the West Coast. As is Ballast Point. Ballast Point is known as a West Coast um, brewery, and so. I think it would be interesting for for Boston Beer to to consider that because they do have a, I think a much more well known brand here on the East Coast versus the West Coast, and if they if they were able to to do something where they could sort of bring the two together, I mean I think ultimately the bottom line is as we're seeing with your Anheuser Busch InBevs of the world. And your Miller Coors and all of these acquisitions, the consolidation in the space. I mean, this consolidation is going to continue, and I think that Boston Beer is going to do one of two things. They are either going to be a consolidator and bring more brands under their umbrella, or at some point, Jim Cook, the founder and CEO, or founder and chairman of the business, is just going to say, "Okay, I'm 65 years old. I think I've kind of done what I wanted to do. I'm going to sell to the highest bidder, and just you know ensure that that the brand is going to be nurtured and taken care of." You know, after after I'm gone, it, it's going to be one of the two. But he's said publicly before. I mean, he gets offers for this business all the time. He's said before he thinks he is going to be the only and final um, American owner of this business. Which take that however you want. But I suspect at some point or another, we probably will see this business acquired by by a bigger competitor. It's just a matter of who and how much. I think that for
0: all the reasons you just said, I think it's a it's a fascinating business to watch. I think. In terms of this earnings season, I would say um, even more urgently, Fitbit needs a. Hit. I, f- I feel like if, <laughs> that one came across my radar. Yeah, I feel like if Fitbit doesn't have a an absolute blowout quarter with a, a raising of guidance, then I think we talked earlier about you know changing the conversation. I think if they don't do that, I think the conversation for Fitbit very quickly moves to. Okay, uh, how are you guys going to sell yourselves? How are you? Yeah. you know, it, it it quickly turns to the larger investors in that business going to management and saying, "All right, it's time to put yourself up for sale."
1: And that's a business where, in looking a little bit at it and in, in trying to sort of see perhaps what the future may hold for them. I mean, I, I I just there's so many things that they need to overcome. I don't think Fitbit really fundamentally solves the problem. I think it's a bit more passing in nature. I think. People tend to not really commit to wearing those things. I saw where they were wanting to introduce some sort of social dynamic to the Fitbit bands in order to try to make make it a a greater selling point. Which I, I mean, I I kind of I feel like that's to me like Apple has probably tried to do too much with the Apple Watch, where they could have kind of had a bit more focus and and made it a, a you know devoted fitness device. Now, if Fitbit's going in the other direction and trying to introduce more things. Well, I don't even know that they've really necessarily nailed the fitness part of it yet. It doesn't sound like they really do that one hundred percent well either. Um, and so, yeah, when I look at something like Fitbit, I mean, there are a multitude of problems there. And um, if if they don't have that blowout quarter, like you're saying, they may kind of be stuck, not really being able to command a premium, um, and just kind of being being hoped to being saved. Uh, before we continue with earnings season quick
0: word about sure payroll if you're a small business owner you know payroll can be a headache small businesses pay hefty fines on a yearly basis due to payroll oversights and now you can protect your business and remove the payroll tax complications with sure payroll it's simple and can be used on any device in just 3 easy steps you enter your employees hours and salaries you preview the taxes being deducted and you approve the payroll that's it and then you're done. Uh, Steve Broido, our man behind the glass on Motley Fool Money, you, you don't even have to be a small businessman. He, he and his wife have um, uh, childcare that, that they they, they use SurePayroll for this. Um, and I mean, you know, Steve's knocking it out in three steps. So you know, connect the dots on that one. You can do it too. SurePayroll will automatically file and pay your federal, state, and local taxes. They make it easy and affordable to manage your small business payroll online, so you can focus on your business instead instead of uh, worrying about late fees and fines. And that's what your customers want. They want you focused on your business. That's all. When I go into Dunkin' Donuts, I don't want to talk to anyone about their payroll taxes. No, I just want my coffee. <laughs> customers include a range of business types such as dental offices, insurance agents, restaurants, barber shops, charitable foundations, tech startups, and Steve Reudo. Uh Sure Payroll also has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. So, go to surepayroll.com and fill out a free quote form, that's surepayroll.com slash fool. it can be a company, it can be an industry, but when you think about earnings season, what are you the most curious about? Obviously there are there there are any range of emotions I think for a lot of investors going into earnings season. And sometimes it's the, oh my gosh, this this is the stock in my portfolio that needs a hit. And then there are others that maybe you're less concerned about. But I feel like there are always companies where it's like, I I'm just
1: I'm not a shareholder but I'm just really curious to see what they're going to do. Well, Chris, right now in my life I'm stuck in I guess what we could just call the Benji vortex of, of homeowners <laughs> problems. Um we're we're Benji Benji the dog? No. Benji Benji on on the Stern show. It's oh, you're okay. going down this this see, rabbit that, hole that you can never ever get out. It's just it, the Benji vortex. I'll we'll, we'll we'll talk about it a bit more after after taping, but this is just you just keep on getting sucked in and you can't get out. And so let me explain. You know I'm I'm big in property. Yes. Own a few houses. You okay, keep... you know? I mean we got uh so
0: I'm surprised you don't have your own show on H G T V <coughs> where you're just like you're you're flipping houses and
1: you're also doing fixer up or Well actually. <laughs> um Are you are you about to break news? <laughs> well so we are in the middle of trying to sell our house in Georgia. What we're doing essentially is we're talking about selling the house in Georgia, selling the townhouse up here, consolidating and just buying a bigger home up here because we think we're going to be here for a while. So, this is the first time I've ever really gone through and tried to sell a house. I love buying, them. of course. Anybody can buy a house. But if you go through and actually sell a house, try to sell that house, then we're going to need to try to sell this house. Then we're going to try to buy another house. So, it's a lot of house buying and selling going on. And this got me thinking about one of my favorite businesses out there, Ellie May. I've talked about it a lot on on the radio show and on the podcast, but the the thing I wonder about with LMA, LMA is for those out there who are not familiar with the business, a mortgage lending software provider, and essentially they provide all of the different sorts of software uh, processes that help lenders get these loans from start to finish. And so the idea is that LMA is is at a great past five years or so, because there has been this huge refinance boom, and everybody's been refinancing because rates have been so low. And, and Ellie Mae's business is is helping on the refinance side, and they also benefit from when people are purchasing houses. Now, rates are going to start going up here in 2017. We, we know this. They really have nowhere to go but up. So, we're basically thinking, all right, refinance volume is going to start drying up. And I'm curious to see if management isn't a little bit Pollyannish as far as their perspective on thinking that purchase mortgages will make up for what they lose in refinance volume. Because refinancing is a lot easier than going out and buying a house, right? I mean, that's just sort of the way that works. So it's a very good business. They make their money as. users subscribe to their services, and they make money as uh, transactions are closed on their platform. So, they make their money a couple different ways, which is nice. But, between rates going up, between the new administration coming in, um, perhaps having some issues there with the RESPA Act, the, the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act, and Truth in Lending and all that, it will be very interesting to see how 2017 shakes out for LMA. I'm going to be interested to see how management guides for this coming year. Um, because I think that right now the stock is in a little bit of a holding pattern. It's pulled back from its highs um, of just a few months ago, and I think that is because the market's not quite certain how 2017 is going to play out. I think it's fair to assume that refinance volume is drying up. Are they going to be able to make up for it on the other end? Um, and if so, I mean this is a great business with a great competitive uh, position in its in its industry. Um, it's, it's not something that I would consider selling by any means. Um, really, I'm trying to look at it from the perspective of is this a good time to consider adding more?
0: You touched on the thing that I'm the most curious about, and that is conference calls across the board. Oh, yeah. I think that more than ever, maybe not more than ever, but um, more than usual, you want to pay attention to what is being said on the conference calls by management, and in particular, What is their outlook? Because I think there are a lot, I know there are a lot of people on Wall Street, in the media, talking about what's happening in Washington, D.C., the change in administration, and they are making a lot of assumptions. And I think that if you've got a management team that is being incredibly bullish about what's going to happen in Washington, D.C., and saying, this is going to happen, and therefore we're upping our guns or whatever. I would take that with a pound of salt. Yeah, I think I think yeah. this is a time where you want you want your management to be a little bit more cautious.
1: Yeah, I would say contain your enthusiasm and just try to be as sort of realistic as possible. It harkens back to when Nike's call shortly after Brexit, and the curiosity there was how much is how much of, of this is going to affect your your inter- international business and guidance for the coming year and management sort of i mean they didn't really hedge their bets they said listen i mean we feel like this is a big enough business with enough global exposure to where one thing like this isn't going to make or break us we're maintaining the guidance that we set before we understand there're going to be some challenges there's plenty of uncertainties and hey this is investing things change all the time and so i think you know that that's those are good lessons for us as investors. Always remember that, yeah, this is a very fluid environment and things change quickly. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that change is going to be permanent. I mean, it, it can be something that could be temporary in nature and, and be a problem, but that could also open up uh, open up opportunity. And um, and yeah, I, I think anytime you see management teams get out there and really pound the drum on, no, we're we're immune to all of this and it's just going to be great and yada yada. yada that's yeah. Take it, take it with a pound of salt, like you said.
0: Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about in the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.